Hi and welcome to The Crime Pod. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Sam. So this week, I was going to say it's a first for me, I don't think it is. I think I've done a case before. But we are off to Wales, where I'm not there often in The Crime Pod, but I think I have done a case in Wales. So yes, we're off to Wales. And this week, I'm going to tell you the long case of Lynette White and the Cardiff Five. Have you heard of Lynette White or the Cardiff Five at all? No, I okay. have not. Um, but I, I will say, though, the last time you went to Wales, I know we've only been to Wales once um, in life and at the Crime Pod for myself, but uh, it was really good. So I'm looking yeah. forward to, to hearing about this one. It is really good. I'd heard bits about the Cardiff Five. But, like, I think I just heard of them as, like, because, spoiler, this is about a huge miscarriage of justice, but I'd heard about them when it came to that, when we've done cases before where people have been found guilty of something they didn't commit. So the names have came up, but I've never been to Wales, unfortunately. I'd love to go to Wales. But it's a beautiful I country, been. I would I say. Do I have actually been once, I lied, I took the wrong turn in Liverpool and went under that tunnel. <laughs> And I was like, oh, where am I going? Like, my maps went off and everything. And then it was like, welcome to Wales. And I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah. So Turn that around. was it. I literally paid the toll fee and drove back round. So that was my, that was my holiday to Wales. It was great. Um, but no, I'd love to go to Wales. I'm a huge fan of Wales and Gavin and Stacey. So I would like to go. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so as I said in the start, it's about Lynette White and the Cardiff Five. So no surprise, our story is set in Cardiff, which Cardiff is the capital city and the largest city in Wales. And it has a population of roughly 362,000. That was in 2001. It, no, 2021. So it's probably going to be a lot more. And it's actually the 11th largest city in the United Kingdom, which is a fun fact for you there. If you're ever at a pub quiz and they ask you the 11th largest city, it's Cardiff. <laughs> um, so Lynette White was born on the 5th of July 1967 and she had quite a tough childhood and early life. Her parents split when she was just under two and her mum left and completely left the picture. So she lived with her grandma and her auntie Lynn also helped out. When she was 12 years old, her grandma died, but she was only 56. So this wasn't like a, your grand's died of old age. This was quite sudden and this hit Lynette quite hard. She ended up leaving school without any qualifications and she still had a good relationship with her auntie Lynn. And she still stayed with her dad. However, this was quite a difficult time for her. And she actually began working as a prostitute when she was 14 years old. Now, Tim Rogers, who's a BBC Wales journalist, actually interviewed Lynette a few weeks before this case all happened as part of an investigation into child prostitution. And she, he actually said she was, quote, probably the most visible prostitute working at Cardiff at the time. Now, she would be the first girl out at lunchtime and the last one in at night. And she even worked Christmas Day. Now, Lynette actually told Tim Rogers that she had been drugged and taken to Bristol by a gang of men who forced her into prostitution. And even though she made her way back to Cardiff, she'd found herself trapped in a continual spiral of prostitution. So she really struggled to get out of this life. She was described as her friends as pretty and popular. And by 1988, she was working every single day to actually pay for her boyfriend's cocaine addiction. Now, they lived together in a flat in Dorset Street, Cardiff, and her boyfriend, Stephen Miller, who was nicknamed Pineapple because he had those like blonde tips in his hair, um, was also her pimp. 
Now, he took about 60 to £90 off Lynette each day, and she earned about £100 a day. So if you can imagine back then as well, this is 1988, earning £100 as a prostitute, that's a huge amount of money in our time. You're looking at, what, two, £300 now? And he would take about 60 to 90 So you're looking at her being left with a tenner. He's taken 90% of that wage sometimes for his cocaine habit because she was his only source of income. Now, each day, Pineapple would drive her to where she worked as a prostitute, which was at Riverside in Cardiff, and then he would meet with her at the North Star Club in the evening to collect her and her earnings. A lot of the time, she was having sex with men in their cars, but early in February 1988, another prostitute called Leanne Villaday, who I will talk about quite a lot in this episode, loaned her the keys to a flat in James Street for the purpose of taking clients there for sex. Now, Lynette went missing around the 9th of February 1988 and made no contact with Pineapple or any of her friends or known associates. Where she was during this time, they don't actually know, but she was actually due to be called as a witness for the prosecution in two forthcoming trials. And it was later thought she was deliberately kind of hiding away to avoid giving evidence. Now, why I say this is because the first trial was actually an allegation of attempted murder and the second involved an allegation of attempting to procure the services of a 13-year-old girl for prostitution. So these were really high cases in Wales at the time. And if you're being called for the prostitu- uh, prosecution, it's not a very good position to be in if the, def- like, you know, if the people involved aren't very good people. Now, when Lynette disappeared, the police began to actively search for her and a judge was actually issued a warrant for her arrest to ensure that she attended the first trial as that was due to go to Cardiff Crown Court sorry, on the 15th of February. So it was quite crucial she was at that trial. Now, Leanne Villaday, who had loaned Lynette the flat, was unable to get into the flat because she didn't have the keys and she hadn't seen Leanne, uh, Lynette sorry, to get the keys. So Leanne wasn't able to get in. So she asked her friend and taxi driver, Eddie Diamond, who actually knew both the women, to take her to the address to try and get in. She was unable to get in and she was, un- she was able to get an uh, occupant to drop like spare keys down but it'd been like bolted almost so she was still unable to get into this flat so her and Eddie Diamond drove to the police station so they went down to the police station and reported the situation and their concerns. They returned to James Street with PS William Bisgood, PC Simon Johnston and PC Anthony Prosser who were basically looking to serve an arrest warrant on Lynette and basically take her into police custody and make sure she appeared in the court. That's what they thought had happened they thought this girl's heard her friend come and be like I found you let me in and she's been like oh shit so that's what they were expecting to happen when they arrived Leanne and Eddie remained outside while the police forced entry and at 9.17pm they found Lynette's body inside now he, the police actually testified that they were aware that she was a missing witness in a court case however like they didn't expect it to be this when he discovered her he found her lying on her back on the floor of a bedroom in the flat having suffered quote massive injuries so I'm going to tell you a bit about the injuries and how she was found. Like, obviously, as always, trigger warning, it's not going to be very pleasant, what I'm going to say. So if you are kind of squeamish and don't like these things, I would skip for the next however long. Now, Lynette's body was discovered at the foot of the bed, which was the only furniture in the room. Um, and she was kind of towards the window. She was still clothed, but had one shoe off. There was heavy blood staining to the base of the bed, the carpet and all the walls of the room. There was very little blood on the mattress where an opened but unused condom was found. Now, Lynette's throat had been cut from the right ear across to the front and around the left side of her neck, which actually was cut so deep it exposed the bones of the spine so they could actually see her spine. 
There were multiple stab wounds to her chest and breasts and other wounds to her face, stomach, arms, wrists, inner thighs, as well as defensive wounds on her hands. The pathologist who conducted her autopsy described it as a, quote, mutilating attack with sexual overtones and actually found a total of 69 wounds. Although she'd been stabbed seven times in the heart, he concluded that it was a throat injury which killed her. Um, he said it would require a considerable force because the skin, muscle, larynx and voice box had all been cut right down to the neck bone. So they'd cut that deep into her throat. Um, he was speculating on how the wound could have been inflicted and he said it was normal for a person to keep their head down in such a situation. So like tip your head forward and kind of defence, like to kind of defend your face. However, he believes that her head might actually have been forcibly held back. So it was done. One of the T-shirts that Lynette was wearing like when she was killed um was absolutely lacerated it looked like a colander basically because the weapon which they believe was about five inches long had stabbed her so many times she'd roughly died they said between midnight and 4 a.m on valentine's day her wristwatch had stopped at 1:45 in the morning which leaded police to conclude that was most likely the time of her death but I don't know how, because like that could have happened during the attack. That's maybe why they speculate that. Now, forensic examination found 150 different sets of finger and palm prints in the flat. Azospermic semen was present in both Lynette's vagina and underwear, which pathologists determined had been deposited there within six hours of her death. Now, Sam, do you know what azospermia is or azospermic semen? Have you heard of that before or is that something you're not aware of? something new to me sorry cool <laughs> when caitlin's talking about sperm today it is basically a ma- like a semen that contains no sperm so of somebody that's not able to have children so some of the blood found oh, on her wow. clothing is yeah fun fact eh? sorry uh, yeah i didn't know that yeah good fact thank you that's okay now some of the blood found on her clothing including her sock was found to be from a male with a blood type ab now, the murder inquiry was led by Detective Chief Superintendent John Williams, who was actually the head of South Wales Police CID at the time. Now, appeals for information led to several potential witnesses describing a white male between 5'8 and 5'10, Asian in his mid-30s with dark, greasy hair and a, quote, dishevelled appearance. Now, he was seen in a distressed state in the vicinity of James Street flat in the early hours of the 14th of February. He appeared to have cut himself on the hand, had blood on his clothing, and he was seen crouched in a doorway. Now, for witnesses that had seen them, they actually made an e-fit of the suspect. And this was released on the 17th of March, 1988. They actually went on to Crime Watch, where he stated that the man was potentially responsible for the murder and said this man almost certainly had the blood of the deceased on him. I mean, it sounds like quite an obvious one. If you're right next to the scene of a murder, you're covered in blood and you're in a bit of a state in a doorway, that would give off. Do you know what I mean? So on the 25th of February, the police detained an individual who bore a striking resemblance to the EFIT, even though the EFIT hadn't been released yet, but he was released the following day after providing an alibi. Um, the suspect seen outside the flat has actually, to this day, never been positively identified, just to carry on with that. Now, what the police had to do was start eliminating suspects. So as you can imagine, there was a few people, especially in her line of work, that they wanted to kind of eliminate first. So first was actually Francine Cordell, who... That was who she was due to testify against. And their mother, Peggy, 
they were initially considered suspects, but actually the blood on the clothing allowed them to eliminate from the inquiry, so they obviously didn't have AB blood. But that is good suspects, to be fair. Like, when I was first reading it, I was like, oh, if she's meant to be in these two trials, that's a given. Now, Pineapple was obviously questioned as well at the beginning of the inquiry, having been picked up by the police early on the 15th of February. But he gave a statement detailing his whereabouts during the period. He was released without charge as the police announced he'd been ruled out of their investigations. He had a solid alibi and actually had been looking for Lynette since she had gone missing. So it's not like he had been shady or anything. And he was really, really distraught by her murder and actually moved back to London to stay with his mum for a while as well because he was that upset. Now, when Pineapple was first taken by the police for questioning, he was still wearing the clothes that he had been wearing at the time of the murder. So these were dirty and unwashed to the stage where the police even joked with him during the interview that he should sit on the other side of the room because of the smell of him. But there was no traces of blood found at all. His car was forensically examined, no results, and his blood type didn't match as well. Um, another witness, David Orton, actually gave a statement to the police with the alibi, just so you know, because I mentioned he had an alibi, but that was actually corroborated by somebody else. On the 20th of April 1988, a detective constable put together a list of 12 people of interest based on their previous criminal activities. So this is basically who in the area was known to police and could potentially do something like this. So one of the men who has never been officially ID'd to public was only known as, quote, Mr X, was a convicted sex offender and paedophile who lived 20 minutes drive from James Street and was known to use prostitutes and a frequent visitor of Cardiff. He had a history of mental illness and had been classed as a, quote, psychopath by his doctor. He was interviewed by the police and he admitted that in the past he had paid Lynette for sex and was unable to account for his movements or provide an alibi for the period of her murder. So it was really important that he looked like a really strong suspect and his blood type was AB. So the police are like, OK, we think we've got our man. Now, he was inter interviewed by Detective Constable Paul Fish, who believed that he had been pressed if he had kept going, he would have confessed to the murder. It was decided, however, to adopt a soft approach until they had the DNA results from the crime scene. So they didn't tell him that they were going to look for his DNA and they kept kind of trying to get him to confess. Um, and they basically get the DNA back and he is eliminated on the 9th of November 1988 because it didn't match. I also want to say that up until they got the DNA back, um, he was actually under surveillance for three days to identify his routines and associates, so he obviously didn't know this. However, they did this because they were worried that he would voluntarily commit himself to a mental institution if he was aware of the surveillance, and then they wouldn't be able to charge him. But they obviously kept an eye on him, nothing suspicious came up, and he was eliminated from the investigation because his DNA was not found at the crime scene. So although their prime suspect has been eliminated, the police had collected thousands of statements through interviews and door-to-door -door inquiries, um, and they now go back and have a look at these because the case against Mr X has dropped. Now, among the statements, there was two from Paul Atkins and Mark Gromick, who are two associates of Mr X. Now, Gromick was the tenant of the flat immediately above where Lynette was murdered, and they were both homosexual men and had previous convictions of petty crimes, which made them susceptible to police pressure. Now, that is actually a quote from the police directly. Both men gave alibis for their whereabouts at the time of the murder, but under pressure from the police, Atkins eventually gave a statement on the 26th of April, which he first said that Gromick had killed her, then he confessed to actually killing her himself. Um, and this was all just like, this all just came out, like they had strong alibis, and then it came out that Gromick had gone to the flat to have sex with Lynette, and then um, Atkins heard a scream, went down the stairs, saw Gromick leaving the flat covered in blood, carrying a knife, 
Atkinson later said he had met Lynette himself, so it wasn't Gromick. They met themselves in a pub, went back to the flat to have sex. He then stabbed her. Like, there was more than four different accounts in this one document of what had happened to Lynette. So this was not treated seriously, and of course the men were not tried or charged with murder because in this one interview they gave four different events of what could have happened to Lynette. So it was obviously all just nonsense. So over the next few months, many men begin to get arrested for the murder of Lynette White. And I just want to say now that why it's a huge miscarriage of justice isn't just this, but all of these men were black, all of these men had alibis, and all of these men did not match the description the police put out. So Stephen Miller, if you remember, Pineapple, is questioned over a period of four days. He was interviewed on 19 occasions for a total of 13 hours, was denied access to a solicitor for his first two interviews. Pineapple, who had a mental age of 11, eventually confessed to the killing after making 307 denials. And he also went on to implicate the other men. They gave him his, he gave them the DNA and everything. The DNA didn't, like obviously his DNA was his girlfriend. Um, he had a strong alibi, but they still charge him. Now, Youssef Abdullahi has been questioned as part of the routine door-to-door inquiry. So Youssef, at the time of the murder, had been working on board the ship MV Coral Sea, some eight miles away, roughly, on the Barry docks. Although he didn't release the time um, off like his shifts and stuff, he had alibis of when he was on the boat. And the only way he could have committed this crime is if he was somehow snuck off the boat when committed the crime eight miles away, then got back on the boat without anybody noticing, which is ridiculous because he has alibis to say he was on the boat at that time. Now, he wasn't aware of this at the time, but his wife, Jackie, was having an aware uh, an affair sorry, with Jeff Smith, who is a South Wales police officer, and he was like working with the vice squad. His brother-in-law, Ronnie Williams, was also a police informant, now, Williams began pla- uh, passing information to the police in March 1988, much of it being unreliable, including a claim that Leanne had been stabbed in the Casablanca Club before being moved to the flat in James Street, which is total nonsense. She wasn't. He initially claimed that Yusef knew the identity of the killer and was concealing this information, but he then implicated him more directly and said that he was able to leave, as I've just said to you, he was able to leave work on the Coral Sea the night of the murder without his colleagues being aware. So it's known by their associates that Yusef and Ronnie, quote, detested each other. So there's maybe a reason why saying that. Now we're going to go back to Leanne, um, who is the lady that gave uh, Lynette the flat. She had also been placed under police pressure during her interviews, particularly as it was her who initially raised the alarm of the police and they felt she was maybe concealing information. Now, a bit more about Leanne. She was a single parent, a lesbian, a drug addict and a prostitute. So the police visited her daily, leading her to actually ask to leave the flat. She was sharing with her friend, Angela, who was also a prostitute. I'll tell you a bit more about Angela in a bit. Now, she began lodging with another couple who had also complained that the police were calling her to speak with her almost on a daily basis. On the 19th of May 1988, while drunk, Leanne eventually named Pineapple and Youssef as the killers in front of several other prostitutes. Now, that evening, she was questioned by PS David Hathaway and agreed that she had named the two men when drunk, but said that this was a false accusation as a result of drunken rambling. And that she had heard the names from D.I. Powell when he had questioned her earlier in the day. So I don't know for sure, but I believe that that D.I. has probably gone round and said to her these names, planted it, hoping that she'll then spiral it. 
There was another witness, Violet Perium. Now, Violet was a, secu- a secretary at the Cardiff Yacht Club. And on the 10th of November 1988, the day after Mr X was cleared of any involvement, she gave a statement to the police saying that she had been driving from the club and had passed 7 James Street at around 1.30 on the night Lynette was murdered. She claimed that she saw four excited black males outside the building arguing and she recognised two of them as John Acty and Rashid Omar, who were of mixed race. Now, John Acty had earlier responded to the door-to-door inquiries and told police on the night of the murder he had gone to the Casablanca Club around midnight and he left about 3.30. John Acty was the cousin of Leanne, the girl that gave the flats, boyfriend Ronnie Acty, who will come into this a bit later as well. Now, this was apparently the, quote, breakthrough needed by the police, um, and she saw John acting the others near the scene of the murder, which basically allowed the investigation to take a new direction. Now, as I said earlier, I'm going to tell you a bit more about the flatmate, Angela. Now, Angela lived in the flat on St Clair's Court, which had an unrestricted view of the front of 7 James Street. She was described later as, quote, one of the most vulnerable members of Cardiff society. She had an IQ of just 55, indicating a learning disability. Now, the police went round with the statement about the group of black men outside. The police questioned her on the 17th of November and insisted that she was somehow connected to the crime. In the first two statements that day, she claimed that Stephen Pineapple Miller visited her about 1am on the 14th looking for Lynette, but obviously hadn't found her. Two and a half hours later, she gave another statement claiming that she saw Miller, John and Ronnie Acty um, Yusef, Tony Paris and Tony Brace who's a doorman at the club outside 7 James Street she also claimed to have heard screams from the flat and to have seen Ronnie Acty talking to somebody in the window of Gromick's flat before being let out the building as part of the 2021 three part BBC documentary A Killing in Tiger Bay which is about this the supposed screaming was reconstructed now they used an actress to go to the flat where Lynette was killed and they used sound like recording equipment and put it in this flat that um, Angela lives in, and even with no background noise, the screams are barely audible. So there's no way she could have heard a scream from there. Now, the same day, Gromick and Atkins give new statements to the police after their four, whatever they were, um, saying that they had also seen a group of men outside the flat, including Ronnie Acty and Youssef. During his first interview in the morning, Gromick had stated that he knew nothing about the murder. But by the afternoon, when being interviewed by the police, he gave a very detailed account of the circumstances surrounding the crime. So this has completely changed. He's gone in there saying he knows nothing. Now he knows a lot of information about it. Gromick also said that he'd opened the door to the building to let Ronnie Acty in. And both he and Atkins now claimed that they too had heard screams that night, even though they had never said that when they'd been interviewed before. Now, Angela gives a new statement to the police on the 6th of December 1988. In this account, she'd been present at Sinclair's court, so she'd actually been in the flat with Leanne. On hearing the screams, the two had gone to 7 James Street, and the most remarkable coincidence, Leanne arrives with um, Angela, and Gromick and Atkins all decide to go to the police and give new accounts of this murder. So that it's on the same day, Leanne, Gromick, Atkins... And Angela, who were all involved at the crime scene, all decide, without speaking to each other apparently, to go and give new statements. Leanne said that when they heard the screams, they had gone to the flat and found um, Lynette dead inside. In the room was Miller, Abdullahi, Ronnie Acty, Tony Miller, who's Stephen Miller's brother, and an unnamed man of mixed race. Gromick and Atkins gave statements which corroborated this new version of events, and Leanne and Angela are taken immediately into police custody. Because it's a protective custody, sorry, not police custody, very different. Because it's like, right, okay, if you're going to say you were actually there, 
that's and you didn't do anything, you need to go into protective custody. So that's what they did with them. On the 7th of December 1988, the police arrested Stephen and Tony Miller, Yusuf Abdullahi, Ronnie Acti, Rashid Omar and Martin Tucker. John Acti and Tony Paris were arrested on the 9th of December. No forensic evidence was ever found to link any of these men to the crime scene. The police were notified on the 10th of December that Angela's blood type was in fact AB, the same that was found on the white on the socks and trousers. They re-interviewed her the following day, insisting that it was her blood that was found on um, Lynette. And she now gives a complete new version of events. She's like, okay, actually, yeah, I was there. Um, I was actually there when they murdered. I was there with Leanne and they took part in the killing. She names Stephen and Tony Miller, Ronnie and John Acti, Tony Paris and Yusuf Abdullahi as the killers and basically said that they that they just ended up being there. She said that Leanne was responsible for cutting Lynette's throat. Leanne then gave a new statement the same day, naming Stephen Miller, Ronnie and John Acti, Yusuf Abdullahi and Tony Paris as the killers and said that she and Angela had both been forced to cut one of what, um, Lynette's wrists each to ensure their complicity and silence. So to make sure that they wouldn't then go to the police because they had actually inflicted a wound on her body. Wow, this is mental. What's going on here? I know, there's a lot of names, there's a lot of statements, but I'm going to sum it up in a second, so please bear with me. So I'm going to tell you a bit more about some of the names that we've heard about. So Tony Paris, he's known as a well-known shoplifter. He was nicknamed Pockets. Um, He had no other convictions. John Acti, he wasn't a fan of the police. Um, He had suspicions about them because he was arrested at 19 for a crime that wasn't him. He had gone to the police station, had been beaten by 11 policemen. He was then charged with assaulting them and then all charges were dropped at 19. So he's got no trust in the police at all. John had a total normal life towards the kind of arrested and like towards his arrest story. He'd obviously done a couple of things when he was younger. He had some kind of petty crimes against him. He had two daughters, a newborn and a wife. Now, the police turned up to question him and basically said that you need to come with us. If not, we'll call back up. So he's like, yeah, it's fine. It's cool. Like, I'll go to the station for questions. And then he's arrested. So he's like, what the fuck? Now, on the 11th of December, the like five of these men that have been arrested become charged. So I know that you're hearing all these names and I am really sorry if it's been really confusing. But the five men that are charged are John Acti, Tony Paris, Youssef Abdullahi, Ronnie Acti and Stephen Miller, who are then branded the Cardiff Five. Now, the trial commenced at Swansea Crown Court on the 5th of October 1989. Now, this began and it had obviously been a kind of high profile case against the five men. But this was interrupted on the 26th of February 1990 after 82 days of evidence by the sudden death of the judge, Justice McNeil. He died of a heart attack during the case. Not obviously at his stand, not being like doing his judging stuff. He just died during the trial. So they ended up having to retrial. This was also heard at Swansea and it commenced on the 14th of May 1990 before Mr Justice Leonard. Now at the time it was the longest murder trial in British legal history. It lasted 197 days. Now the police had put a story together that all five men got together, went to the flat and took it in turns in killing her. Said it was like a drug deal example kind of thing. Because I don't think these five men were friends. It's not like the Cardiff Five or like a group of five men that would all hang out together. So that's what the police had to do is say that all of these five men were there. Now, they had four key witnesses. They obviously had Paul Atkins and his friend Gromit, Angela and Leanne. Now, the testimonies were filled with lies, discrepancies, and nobody could work out what was happening at the murder scene. Like, if you can imagine everything I've just told you, 
that is all in police files. So if you're confused, can you imagine giving this over at a trial? Like, what the fuck? Like, there's people like, let's talk about Atkins and Gromit, for example. In their first statement, they said they didn't have a clue. They then say they were the killers. They blame, like, each other for killing, then blame themselves for killing. They then say they had nothing to do with it. They then say, oh, actually, yeah, we heard screams. They then say they're in it. Like, that's just, like, what is going on here? The police statements were also full of lies. And the judge actually says that the witness statements, uh, witness statements, sorry, aren't strong. And he's like, I don't think this would be enough to put people away. No DNA linked them to the flat. None of them had AB blood type. And every single one of them had a corroborated alibi. So they had somewhere that was telling them they were not at the scene. On the 22nd of November 1990, three of the five of the card of five were accused and found guilty of Lynette's murder. Tony Paris, Yusuf Abdullahi and Stephen Miller, who then became known as the card of three, were each sentenced to life imprisonment. What the fuck? There's no DNA. There's no matching blood type. They have a strong alibi. Three of them are, are sentenced to life. Cousins Ronnie and John Acty were acquitted of murder, but both had already spent two years in custody. They were obviously relieved to get out, but they weren't happy. They were so upset, pleading that the other three were innocent. They cried, and when they were asked how they felt, they said, I am bitter and I am broke, as they knew those three men were innocent. They were pleading like to people, they are innocent, like they haven't done anything. In early 1991, a number of journalists began to question the safety of the convictions, and actually, if all these witness statements were as messy as they were, what happened when the police were interviewing people? In May 1991, two of the convicted men were granted leave to appeal their convictions, but Stephen Pineapple Miller was refused, so he wasn't allowed to like, leave to appeal. Now, Satish Sikar, who's an investigative journalist specialising in crime and justice issues, actually tracked down two of the witnesses not called at the trial who could provide a full alibi for Pineapple's whereabouts at the time of the murder. So the defence, for some reason, didn't use like, the two people that could go on the stand and say, like, I was literally with him. There is no way he could have been there. Now, Pineapple... The defence never said that. Yeah. His own defence team. Yeah, they didn't get... Wow. Like, they were not used. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know why uh -huh. they weren't used, but they didn't actually get the people up to say, like, no, I was literally with him. There's no way he could have done this. Yeah. Crazy. Mental. Um, Pineapple asked if he would organise a new legal team to prepare his appeal and Seekar persuaded renowned solicitor Gareth Pierce to take on the case and handle the renewed application to appeal. Now, he instructed Michael Mansfield QC to represent Pineapple in court. Now, the appeal was heard over four days in December 1992 and ended after the Court of Appeal listened to an audio recording of Stephen Pineapple Miller's police interrogation. He argued that the trial judge was wrong to admit the evidence of Mr Miller's police interviews um, as it contained it was tainted by the officers and showed oppressive conduct. The interviews were, he said, not a search for the truth, but a police attempt to achieve, by any means short of violence, a concurrence between Mr Miller's accounts and Miss Villadez. In his judge statement, Lord Taylor basically said that the police had, quote, bullied and hectored Miller during a travesty of interviews and that short of physical violence, it is hard to conceive a more hostile and intimidating approach by officers to a suspect. 
Now, pineapple's admission, according to Taylor, was irrelevant, as the nature of the questioning required the interview to be rejected as evidence. He ordered copies of the recording to be sent to the Director of Public Prosecutions and the Chairman of the Royal Commission on Criminal Justice as a, quote, example of what we hope we shall never hear again in this court. That's how bad the police interviews were. Now, all three men had their convictions declared unsafe and unsatisfactory, and they were released. Youssef Abdullahi was treated for post-traumatic stress disorder after his release from prison and campaigned on behalf of other victims of miscarriages of justice for the reopening of the investigation into Lynette's murder. So he was like, I didn't do it, so let's find out who did. In 1996, he said, until it happens to you, no one can have any idea what it's like to be convicted for a murder you didn't commit. We've been really messed up by what we've been through. We needed counselling, but no one offered us any help. Being inside really did my head in. In September 2000, the case was reopened and forensic scientist um, um, Angela Gallup discovered fresh evidence, including a small trace of blood on the cellophane wrapper from a cigarette packet and a further 10 traces of the same blood were underneath several layers of paint on a skirting board at the crime scene. The killer was dubbed, quote, cellophane man by scientists and detectives, but no match was found for him in the United Kingdom National DNA Database. In January 2002, due to science, they were finally able to obtain a reliable crime scene DNA profile. Now, hopes were also raised of the solving of a case in the same year by South Wales Police, where they were able to positively identify a historical Port Talbot serial killer, Joe Cappen, using the approach of familia, familia, familial DNA searching, which basically means like if they were trying to... Are you Italian? Yes, familial. If they were trying to like... (laughs) If they were trying to like track down my mum, for example, they could use my DNA to find her. Now, he had been unmasked basically as a killer after forensic examples from three of the 1973 murder victims were found to match his living son. So they were hoping in Lynette's case they could use this. So using this process of DNA searching, a partial match was eventually made with the profile of a 14-year-old youth who was known to the police but had not been born at the time of the murder of Lynette. Now they they track his family and managed to find a 38-year-old uncle that lived near he was put under surveillance and during the surveillance they saw him buying a large quantity of paracetamol so they burst into him on his house the same day. Now this man was Geoffrey Gafour and when they burst in he said, no joke, just for the record, I did kill Lynette White. I've been waiting for this for 15 years. He was arrested on the 28th of February 2003 of, um, and he was the youth's uncle. Now, yes, he had taken an overdose of paracetamol. They literally burst in on him, killing himself and he went to hospital and he survived. He lived three miles away from the docks and had cut ties from his family after the murder and blanked it from his memory. He had one other conviction, assaulting a co-worker in 1992. So Lynette's murder was supposedly his first and only murder. He said he can't remember much. He said he lashed out at Lynette after he changed his mind about having sex with her and wanted his money back and she refused to give him the money back. He was prosecuted for the murder in July 2003 and on the 4th of July 2003 at Cardiff Crown Court he pleaded guilty to Lynette's murder and the judge, Mr Justice Roy, sentenced him to life imprisonment with, wait for it, a minimum tariff of 12 years and 8 months. A minimum of 12 years and 8 months was actually less than what was given to two of the Cardiff three. So he has literally done it, he's played guilty, he's like, it generally was me and he got a less minimum tariff than two of the Cardiff three. He said he acted alone and obviously apologised to the Cardiff five for what he put them through but at the end of the day like he kept quiet all these years which is shite. 
In February 2007, four witnesses who gave evidence at the Aboriginal murder trial were charged with perjury. In December 2008, three of the accused, so Angela, Leanne and Mark Gromick, were found guilty of committing perjury and each were sentenced to 18 months imprisonment. The fourth, Paul Aitkins, was deemed, quote, unfit to stand trial. Um, so, yeah, they obviously were charged with perjury and they did say, like, it, the judge actually said, Justice Madison actually said, it's been submitted on your behalf, accepted by the prosecution, and I accept it myself. You were seriously hounded, bullied, threatened, abused and manipulated by the police during a period of several months leading up to late 1988, as a result of which you felt compelled to agree to false accounts they suggested to you. However, perjury is an offence, so you have to be sentenced, basically. So even though they were like, yep, it was the police, they still had to be sentenced. In November 2004, so we're going back a bit, the IPCC announced that it would supervise a reinvestigation into the South Wales Police of the original police inquiry. So what happened all those years ago? On the 13th of April 2005, five retired police officers were arrested in connection with offences of false imprisonment, imprisonment sorry, conspiring to pervert the course of justice and misconduct in public office. Four more retired police officers were arrested in connection with the roles in the original murder investigation on the 21st of April 2005. Along with the officers, a further 13 people were arrested in connection with the evidence and information that they had provided in 1988, which had incriminated the three convicted men. On the 19th of May 2005, three serving police officers, a detective constable, a constable and a detective sergeant were arrested. As the investigation continued, over 30 arrests had been made by November 2005, 19 of whom were re retired or serving police officers, including one that was an inspector level. In March 2009, the Special Crime Division of the Crown Prosecution Service, the CPS, announced that there was sufficient evidence to prosecute three serving officers and ten former officers involved in the original investigation with conspiracy to pervert the course of justice. Two further witnesses in the original trial, um, Violet Periam and Ian Massey, were also charged with perjury. So I, I think Violet was obviously the woman who had said she saw the four black men that was not true. Um, so they were charged with perjury. Now, it's it just it continues on like all of these, and I wish I could say that the police got what they deserve, but if I'm honest, like they don't, and you know that's what's happening. In July 2011, the trial, which is known to be the largest police corruption trial in British criminal history, of Chief Inspectors Graham Mountshire, Richard Powell, Chief Superintendent Thomas Page, Detectives Michael Daniels, Paul Jennings, Paul Stephen, Paul Greenwood, and John Seaford. Violet Periam and Ian Massey commenced at Swansea Crown Court. Massey was a convicted armed robber incarcerated at HM Prison Cardiff at the same time as Tony Paris and John Acty. Now, he, beca he became sorry, a police informant against the men in return for representations made by the police to his forthcoming parole board hearing. So he basically gave evidence at the trial that um, Tony Paris had confessed to the murder while they'd been in jail together, which, of course, was a lot of shite. During the trial, concerns had been almost continuously raised by the Defence Council relating to alleged non-disclosure by the prosecution of relevant documents. Now, this bit is going to be very, very like bulky, but please just stay with me. And if you get lost, Samantha, please share, like, be like, Caitlin, what are you talking about? So the non-disclosure by the prosecution of the relevant documents. So on the 28th of November 2011, Mr Justice Sweeney ordered the prosecution to produce to him a number of specific documents requested by the defence. Four of these documents were, quote, found to be missing from their expected location 
and an initial investigation by the police concluded that the documents had been destroyed in 2010 on the instructions of Detective Chief Superintendent Christopher Coots. As a result, Nicholas Dean QC, leading counsel for the prosecution, informed the court on the 1st of December 2011 that the prosecution can no longer sustain a position maintaining that the court and the defendants can have the required confidence in the disclosure process, the confidence that my Lord has referred to with all its importance to our criminal justice system. In those circumstances, I formally offer no further evidence and will invite my Lord to direct the jury to return a non-guilty verdict. End quote. So this is to the police, right? The decision was made at the highest level by Keir Starmer, who at the time was the Director of Public Prosecutions, Head of the Crown Prosecution Service and the most senior public prosecutor in England and Wales. Now, the trial collapses and the South Wales, South Wales Police immediately announce referral to the IPCC for further investigation. Now, on the 17th of January 2012, the missing documents were found in the office of DCS Coots, still in the original box which they had been sent from by the IPCC. So they got off on a technicality of missing papers, although they were in a box the whole time. Now, Seeker, who I mentioned earlier, responded to the acquittals by saying, quote, it's a very, very sad day for justice. And it suggests you cannot ever prosecute police officers successfully if you can't do it in a case like this. Now, the BBC journalist and broadcaster Tom Mangold, who covered the case for Panorama in 1992 and again in 2012, called it, quote, the biggest scandal in the history of British justice. Now he noted that thirteen accused, if the, sorry, he noted that if thirteen, if the thirteen accused Cardiff detectives had been found guilty, presumably all their previous cases, hundreds would have had to be reopened and re-examined. But instead, they're now considering suing the South Wales Police. Now, by the time the trial collapsed, all of the police officers charged had been allowed to retire. So I get what he's saying there, and sum it up in better words, like if they had basically found them guilty of this case, they would have to have looked through every case they ever done to find out if they'd also committed other miscarriages of justice. But during the trial, they'd all been allowed to retire on their full pension. And then the charges were dropped. So they're all having a fucking cushy time, no matter what they put Which through. is the one thing... Yeah. Sorry, sorry to interrupt, but mm. that is the one thing that truly, royally pisses me off about the police. That mm. if there's something against them, they're still allowed to retire. Like, yep. I'm sorry, if there was something against me at my work, they'd... I don't know what they'd do because, you know, you have to read Babes, the robot. You can't retire it. But, I'm sorry no, to tell you. You ain't going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> but they wouldn't be like oh on you go and retire Sam and you know if there's something wrong with you if we find out that you've done something bad we'll come back it's like yeah. no it just no doesn't way that happen. happen nah no way mm-hmm. no way oh sorry I know but no, it's, it's fine it's fine so in February 2015 the then Home Secretary who was Samantha oh, was it Theresa May it was Theresa hey. May announced that an investigation into the collapse of the police corruption trial would be carried out, led by Richard Horwell, QC. Now, Theresa May, who rejected calls for a full public inquiry, said there are still unresolved questions surrounding the reasons why no one was found responsible for this appalling miscarriage of justice, which, fair enough, Theresa. The inquiry was expected to present its findings in the summer of 2015, but this was delayed by the civil actions brought by former officers against the South Wales Police. So you're probably thinking, what do you mean civil actions? Following the collapse of the corruption trial, eight other fucking police officers and seven others sued South Wales Police for damage to their reputations. They sued of South Wales Police. Of course they did. Yeah. 
I do not know the outcome of this. I can't seem to find anything about a money pair or whatnot, but they had the fucking audacity to try and sue the police. Now, I'm going to kind of speed us up to date now and kind of just sum up where everyone's at. So in September 2007, Ronnie Acti was found dead in his back garden. Police said there was no suspicious circumstances around this. I don't know if this was just of age or suicide. I'm not sure. Yusef Abdullahi, he died of a um, perforated ulcer in January 2011. He was only 49. John Acti, Tony Paris and Stephen Miller are the only three still alive of the Cardiff Five, as Ronnie died, as I said, in 2007 and Yusef in 2011. Each of the men received compensation for being wrongly detained. So Pineapple received £571,000, Tony Paris received £250,000 and Acti received £300,000. All very rogue numbers, but I do believe that Pineapple deserved the highest amount because he was hounded. In 2021, the parole board decided Jeffrey Gaffour was not suitable for release after being given a life sentence in 2003 for the killing. However, he got out on day release this year and a lot of people are not happy, including some of the Cardiff Five siblings who have come forward to be like, this is an absolute fucking joke, which it is. I kind of want to finish with, yes, we've just spoke about this huge miscarriage of justice, but actually this case is all about a woman that was brutally murdered. Lynette was a, a very happy, lovely young woman who her life was taken away so, so young. And because of the police's actions, that's kind of been shadowed. Again, like when I started researching this case, I thought it was going to be like 80% Lynette and then 20% of the kind of, but it's it's not. It's pretty much the other way around. Like her murder is just completely shadowed and it's all about the card of five, which it does deserve to be too, because that is a huge miscarriage of justice. However, Jeffrey Gaffur, it's kind of just forgot about what he did because, yeah, he murdered her and he, he eventually was like, yeah, it was me and went to jail. But actually, like if he had been found out initially, her murder would be a lot more of the importance of this case where I feel like the police is fuck up has made that the most important if you get what I mean Samantha yeah 100% it's taken the the line not the limelight but the the light off of Lynette off of her whole life and everything that she's done and you know the injustice of her being murdered because the police uggered it up yeah genuinely put bluntly yeah they did and I think the fact that nobody from the police has been found guilty is atrocious Um, I think that's absolutely horrific and it shows that you know as kind of they said like an actual quote from that if a case like this can't find the police guilty then what can we ever find the police guilty of 